Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. Well, it is the Advent season. Some of you guys are a little more uh, enthusiastic about it than others. Um, some of us get drug kicking and screaming out of Thanksgiving into the uh, end of the Christmas season. And uh, I love Thanksgiving, and, and not because of the food. I love Thanksgiving because it's the, it's the unadulterated holiday. Uh, I noticed this year, this was the first year I've really seen an attack on Thanksgiving. Uh, you know, Christmas, we've, let's be honest, we share Christmas. You know, we have the birth of Jesus on one hand, but then we have all the other stuff on the other, on the other hand. Uh, I was thinking about some of the songs of Christmas, and, and there's some doozies out there, right? Um, I, I, I just, I Googled, I said, what are, the, what are the weirdest Christmas songs that are out there? And, and I've heard them over the years, but I wanted a list. I wanted to, to have a, a, a compilation of the weirdest Christmas songs. And, and I forgot about gems like um, Dominic the Donkey. Uh, yes, and I thought, I thought, man, that, that's a that's a strange one. Uh, and apparently, Italian people love that song. I'm not Italian, so maybe that's why it I'm, it loses something on me. Um, but this Advent season, I want us to um, take a break from our, our journey through Acts for for these next four weeks, and and to to consider the the true songs of Christmas. And, and, and maybe you're listening to Christmas music on the radio. Maybe you're, uh, you know, you've got a playlist that you're listening to. And, and, uh, and it occurred to me that there's some, there's some songs that are pretty popular that are really kind of odd, right? Um, like, I've been in churches that sing this song before, Little Drummer Boy. That's a weird song. I mean, can we just be honest? That's just, just a really strange song. It's a song about a kid who plays the drums, and in some weird reality, a mother with a newborn invites a drummer into the nursery to play the drums for the baby. We got signs back here in the daycare that say, quiet, babies are sleeping. And nowhere does it say back there, Bring your drums into the baby nursery so that we can play drums for the baby. That is literally the last instrument that you would bring to a newborn baby. I have got an awesome rudiment that I'm going to play for you guys today to, 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 to welcome the baby into the world. I mean, no. Like, what were they doing when they wrote that song? And, and then you got the weird ox and lamb keeping the rhythm as well. And, and again, I don't know what farm they've been on where ox and lambs march in time with the drummer. But that's just weird, right? And, and I'll be honest, I'm kind of a magi wise man snob. I get a little, I cringe a little bit when the wise men show up too early. Uh, because again, we want to be biblical. And uh, I hate to break this to you. The wise men ain't there at the nativity scene. They're not there. I will move wise men. If I can do it without getting caught and I see a nativity scene that's got wise men in it, I'll move it. I've been in stores, like where they've got the wise men set up, the, the nativity scene set up on like an end cap or something, and I'll, pit, I'll pick the wise men off and I'll move them to a different part of the section just to maintain some level of biblical integrity there. So if you start breaking out your wise man songs before appropriate time, I get a little bit, uh, I get a little bit of antsy about that. And, and there's other songs that, that just are, are odd I'm, or, or, or really are cringeworthy. I, pretty much any song, Christmas song that Mariah Carey sings or covers, it just makes me cringe. 
<laughs> walking through a store, all I want for Christmas is you. And I was like, oh, making my ears bleed. So, um, some of us get drug out of the Thanksgiving season a little bit more reluctantly than others. But as we think about the songs of Christmas, it, it seems that joy is quite a prevalent theme. And we've talked about hope and the lighting of the Advent candle. It seems like these are very popular themes in the songs of Christmas. And, and of course, joy is one we started our worship service off with, with joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Oh, come all ye faithful, joyful, and triumphant. God rest ye merry gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone Stray, O oh, tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy, O oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled, joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. Truly he's taught us to love one another, his law is love, his gospel is peace, chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppressions shall cease, sweet hymns of joy in grateful chorus raise thee with all our hearts we praise his holy name so joy is all over the place in our christmas playlist although i don't know if it's in little drummer boy or not but we need to remember something about joy it doesn't spontaneously appear it's not something that just materializes by itself joy is a consequence joy is a is a product of a greater reality and of a greater truth Luke's gospel, Luke, of course, gives us more information than the other gospel writers about the events surrounding Jesus' birth. Um, we get the angels and the shepherds. We get the no vacancy there at the end. We also get some details about Mary's pregnancy, details that are contained for us there in the first chapter of Luke. Now, of course, we know that the angels bring Mary the news of her pregnancy. Shortly after she hears word of this, she takes a little bit of a trip. She goes to see her relative to spend some time with Elizabeth. And Elizabeth is expecting her own miracle baby, John. And so I love the scene where Mary and Elizabeth meet. And we're told in Luke chapter 1 that as they meet, that the baby inside Elizabeth leapt with joy. And that wasn't spontaneous motion. That wasn't that, that oh, the, the baby kicked. I mean, the Bible's giving us something very specific here, and we understand that that was John. And he's a human being. He was a, he was a baby, not yet born, who's created in God's image and likeness. It was a baby for whom God already had great plans. Don't forget about John the Baptist in today's contemporary arguments that are taking place that there was a baby inside his mother who was very much, um, God already had very much had his hand on that little boy. But at that meeting between Mary and Elizabeth, we find that Mary bursts into song. We might even say that it is her song, sadly not Dominic the donkey. It is her song that is the very first Christmas song that we find in Scripture. And so today I want us to begin our celebration of Advent by taking a look at this very first Christmas song. Her song, of course, begins with a bold declaration of joy. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. But I want us to understand that there is a catalyst for the joy that Mary experiences. And so with that in mind, let's turn to Luke chapter 1. And 
beginning there in verse 46. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 46. I would invite you to stand as we read these words, the first Christmas song there in the pages of Scripture. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 46. And Mary said, we might say Mary saying, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and then returned to her home. Father, I thank you for the song of Mary, this, this Christmas song that is uh, there printed for us in the pages of Scripture. God, I pray that as we consider joy during this season, Father, that we might understand where that joy comes from. As a matter of fact, all of the themes of Advent, whether it be hope or, or joy or, or peace or love, those things all stem from a common place. So today, may we consider that as we study these words together. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Mary, in this moment and in this place, is clearly overwhelmed with joy. Uh, but one of the things that you, you can't help but recognize is that when we look at Mary's song, the song is much less about Mary and much more about the Lord. It's a reminder, this song is, it's a, it's a historical hymn. It, it, it reckons back to God's activity in times past. It is a reminder of, of God's actions throughout history. Simply put, we see that this Christmas song that Mary sings is filled with joy because it's a song that's all about grace. And it is our awareness of God's grace that leads us to a place of joy. How can you not consider God's grace that has been shown to us and not find yourself in the midst of great joy? So on a Sunday when we might normally talk about joy or hope or some other theme, I want us to talk about the forerunner of those ideas, and that forerunner is grace. In its simplest form, grace is just this, unmerited favor. It's a definition that we've all heard, we've all used, we understand what grace is. And I love that when Mary begins this, Mary's situation isn't lost on her. She understands that she's coming from a tough spot, right? She's a young woman. Some have speculated that she might even be a, a teenager in this time. And she is betrothed to a man. It's not like she's... She's not like Esther, where Esther is, is betrothed to a king, a powerful king, and she's about to come into a position of queen where, where she can influence change and, 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 and enact political, uh, political changes. That's not who Mary is. Mary is a young woman, and she is betrothed to a common laborer. He's not a man of noble birth. Joseph is simply a, 
a carpenter. Not that there's anything wrong with carpenters. I appreciate carpenters. I live in a house that was made by wood that was built by people who are pretty good in woodwork. So I appreciate a good carpenter, but we understand that carpentry is blue-collar work. It's not white collar. It's not. It's not a. Uh, it's not a desk job on on you know downtown somewhere. And so you know his the person she's betrothed to here, Joseph, is he doesn't have much in terms of resources. Just based upon the circumstances that that we know of, we can tell that that there's not a lot of power and prestige here in the first family of the kingdom. And so Mary understands that this situation in which she finds herself. She can't approach this situation with entitlement. I, I deserve this, right? She can't approach this with, with the idea that she's worked her whole life to get to this place where, where she's earned it. She's done all the right things. She's crossed all the T's, dotted all the I's. She has earned this position of favor. She has worked hard to get to this prestigious role. She can't approach this situation with a sense of you know, God, it's about time that you realize what a great gal you had to work with here that you've had sidelined this whole time. It's not how she approaches this. She begins with words of praise, but she acknowledges immediately that God has looked upon the humble estate of her servant. What's she saying there? She's not saying that, that you know, she lives in a, in a you know, little little tiny three-two on half an acre. That's not the estate that she's talking about here. What she's talking about is just her condition, her situation, that God has looked upon the humility of her situation. And Mary here teaches us something of utmost importance, that if we can begin our celebration of the Christmas season with this being the theme of our song, we need to understand this. Pride never leads us to grace. Pride never leads us to grace because God's grace is never deserved. If it were deserved, it wouldn't be grace. We never get to look at the Lord and say, see, God, we, we earned this. We deserve this. We, we deserve your favor, your kindness, your mercy. We deserve all those things. No, those things are all God's grace. In fact, the Bible reinforces this. James chapter 4, verse 6, it says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 3, 34, it says, toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. You see, Mary's words, Mary's words taken out of context can lead us to think she was very proud. Look at uh, what she says in the second part of verse 48. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Well, that statement by itself, that's a, that could be a prideful statement. <laughs> Everyone from now on is going to call me blessed. I, everyone will look to me and, and, and consider just how blessed I am. But that's not because of anything that Mary did. Mary's not blessed because she earned it. Mary's not blessed because she's great. Mary's blessed because God is great. And there are certain denominations, the Catholic Church venerates Mary, treats her as a saint. Many have a very dangerous and idolatrous understanding of Mary. Now, we understand Mary is critical to the story, but when you read through the Gospels, it's not like Mary's at the corner of every critical juncture coaching Jesus on what to do. She's not like the, the mom at the Little League game who is standing on the sidelines trying to tell little Johnny exactly how he's supposed to do whatever he's supposed to do. Uh, we've had sports, even uh, like a sporting program here, and, and 
Like, we've had some mamas who take soccer mom to a whole new level. And, and y'all who've been there, you know. Because coach is saying one thing, and mama on the sideline is telling little Johnny something different. And it's like, mama, you need to be quiet and let coach do the job. Mary's not this. Mary's not on the sidelines coaching Jesus at every juncture. It's just not, she's not part of the story. The gospel writers maximize her significance here, but, but they really do minimize her role in Jesus' story. She's critical, but she's not at every juncture. And so when she says that future generations will call her blessed, she understands that it's not because of her, but it's because of God's work in her. In fact, Jesus even speaks to this very thing later on in Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 11, verses 27 through 28, Jesus said these things, and a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said, Blessed is the wound that bore you and the breast in which you nursed. But Jesus said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. You see, somebody in the crowd tried to elevate Mary to a unique position, and Jesus reminds the crowd that it's not our work, but God's work in us that leads to this position of being blessed. That's, that's what Jesus is saying there. Now, future generations will indeed call Mary blessed. She's a, seen as a role model, as a model of faithfulness, as a model of obedience. But it's not because of anything that she did. It's because of what God did in her and through her. She didn't earn it. It was God's gift to her. For he who is mighty, she says, has done great things for me. And holy is his name. She never looks at herself and says, I, I earned this. You know, this is my right. She never does that. Anything that's good about her situation, she points right back to the one who is good and the one who made all things. And we need to recognize that as well. Whatever there is that is good about us, it's only good because God did it, not because of anything that we did to earn it or deserve it. And so we understand how important God's grace is here, that unmerited favor, but we also need to understand that God's grace is so abundant. Mary's song continues with an awareness that God's grace, it's not shut off. She, she goes on to verse 50 there and says, His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Consider the, the context of Mary's story here in the New Testament. We understand that, that God has been silent for 400 years. There's been no word from God. The, the last word we get from God is from Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. And he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Hey, Elijah the prophet's there in, in Elizabeth's womb and just jumped for joy, that pointing to John the Baptist. And Malachi goes on, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And that was the last thing God said. No prophetic word, no word from God, just a promise that I'm sending Elijah ahead of the day of the Lord. And then suddenly, in this moment, in the lives of Mary and Elizabeth and all the characters surrounding the birth of Jesus, God breaks the silence. You imagine 400 years to not hear from God. Generation after generation 
after generation after generation. There's been no word. We've not heard from him. You imagine how, how that would feel? Uh, I mean, if your parents could say, you know, I remember when, when, we got, when the prophets spoke. If your grandparents could say, I remember when the prophets spoke. But for a generation to live, to not know someone from whom God had spoken through those prophets, to think, you might think God was done. Under the oppression of foreign rulers, is God finished with us? Mary reminds us, though, that his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation to generation to generation. In spite of 400 years of silence, God had not suspended his mercy. He had not suspended his grace. And and this birth of this child was about to usher in a new era of grace in which anyone who would follow the Lord Jesus Christ could be saved from their sins. This new era was about to unfold. and, And these characters are on the front lines of this story that's about to be told. You see, God's grace is abundant. I don't know about you, I need to hear that this morning because I feel like that that you're probably like me and that we look at some of the times in which we live and we think, I wonder if God's finished with us. I wonder if God's done. Oh, you know, or, or is, is, this, is this another one of these 400 years of silence where, where we can look back in our own history and we can think about awakenings and revivals and all those things? We can, we can hear those stories. They're part of our history. But we look today and think, God, please send an awakening. God, please send a revival because that's the only thing that's going to turn the tide. God, please speak into our world today. We look across the Atlantic at Europe, and we realize that Europe was, it was once so much the center of Christian civilization. And now the truth is that the church there is nothing but an artifact, a distant memory. Church buildings that once housed vibrant congregations are now being converted into pubs and Airbnbs and museums. In some of our major cities, even in the city of Atlanta, there were once churches that were great, awesome churches that were filled to the brim are simply shells of their former existence, housing pews and a handful of folks that are not going to sustain the church very much longer. Are we going down the same pathway? Maybe you look at your own family, and you look at your kids and your grandkids, and you know they know the truth. But if we're honest, it seems that they just don't make much time for Jesus or for his church. You find yourself asking the question, is God finished with them? And Mary reminds us of something important. God's grace abounds. And God has proven over and over again that if we will fear him, he will show us mercy and show us grace. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, it's a verse that we all know, and sadly we use it out of context more than we ought. But in Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, it says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. We often hear this verse like it's applied to the United States of America. Like, like we're some sort of modern version of Israel. But when I read this, if my people who are called by my name, that applies to 
the, the folks in this room and the folks who are gathering in rooms just like this all across our land today. This is not a message to the, to the people of America. This is a message to the people of the church. And God says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. It's a warning to us, but I also believe that it's such a reminder of how abundant God's grace actually is. And as God's people, we need to recognize God's not necessarily finished with us because there's abundant grace for every generation. However, we must recognize that grace cannot and must not be presumed upon. Inasmuch as grace abounds, we need to understand something. God, folks, he's serious, right? I mean, we, we live in a culture where Christianity is treated like a hobby, like an accessory, like a, like a cross around our neck, that, that it's something that I wear and I use it when it's convenient, but I only need to pull it out every once in a while. And that's not how God ever intended this because God is very serious. Mary thinks back over history in this song, and she realizes that God has been active in history, and there have been plenty of times, she remembers, where the mighty and the powerful have been put in their place by the Almighty. God's activity in history, it's been one where the, the humble have been exalted and the mighty have been dethroned, she sings here. And who knows what exactly she's got in mind when she's reflecting on this. As I read her words, I, I'm kind of drawn towards the, the contrast between King Saul and King David. And she's a good Jewish girl, so she probably thinks this as well. You remember the story of King Saul and King David. King Saul was, was picked by the people, not necessarily because of his outstanding character. And when you read King Saul's story there in 1 Samuel, beginning in chapter 9, it's not that King Saul shows up as a man of great character, of, of great, we would not recognize him as a man of great Christian value. We're told in, in 1 Samuel chapter 9, we're introduced to him, and he is described to us, the very first thing we understand about him is he is the most handsome man in Israel. He'd be on the cover of one of those magazines, right? He's the most handsome man in Israel, and it says that he's a head taller than everybody else. So he definitely rises above the crowd, not in the way that we would hope, though. And when we think about Saul, his spiritual devotion is never something that's overly emphasized, in fact, his position as king ultimately goes to his head, and he loses his kingdom for it. We flip forward a few chapters to 1 Samuel 16, and we're introduced to David. And again, we're told David is a handsome young man, but throughout the story of David, we see David as a man of character. Given the opportunity to kill Saul, David says, I'm not touching God's anointed. He knows he's the king. He knows he's ready to be ushered in. But David's a man of character even when he fails. And he falls in mighty ways. When he's confronted with his sin, he immediately turns to repentance. He's seen as a man, not of selfish pride, but of a genuine desire, even though he's fallen, to follow God. See, God's grace is shown over and over again to those who do not deserve it. It is a gift that must be received not something that is simply granted to us. 
Romans chapter 2, verse 4, it says, Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that it's God's kindness that's meant to lead us to repentance, that grace that God is showing to us, that that, that is designed to lead us to repentance? And that repentance is the means by which we become beneficiaries of God's grace. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, Paul says. It leads to ask, for us to ask a very important question. Are there areas in our lives where we are presuming upon the grace of God? Areas where we know that we're skirting by the truth. We know that God's grace is abundant. And if we're being honest, we're just really counting on that, right? I'll just keep on doing what I'm doing because I know there's grace in spite of the fact that the Bible says don't do that. Don't count on, don't, don't presume upon God's grace. Don't continue in sin that grace might abound. You see, the more I sin, the more grace I get. And that makes God look better, right? That's not how it's supposed to work. Paul continues in Romans 6 making the case that when we are in Christ, we've been united with Christ and therefore he tells us in no uncertain terms in Romans chapter 6 verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. He continues in verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. You see, as we approach this Advent season, the challenge for us as beneficiaries of God's grace is that we would present our bodies to be instruments for God's righteousness. You see, if there is in us a dwelling place for sin, today is a good day for us to seek God's forgiveness. Mary concludes her song with a simple reminder that God's grace in history leads us to understand God's grace today. Mary's song concludes by asking us to just look over the scope of human history and God's history of, of working in the people of Israel inasmuch as today we long to see God work. Man, don't you want to see God move today? Don't you want to see God break strongholds down? Don't you want to see God rescue people from sin? We, we talk about all the things that are wrong in the world today, all the lifestyles that exist today that are abhorrent to God. I'll tell you what, I'd love to see God just tearing those strongholds down. I'd love to see men and women who were trapped and strapped and oppressed by these sinful, dangerous lifestyles standing in pulpits just like this one and bearing witness to the grace of God in their life that rescued them from sin and set them in a new pathway in life. Wouldn't you love to see that today? We can still have confidence that God has not turned his back on us today. Because we have seen him work in history. From generation to generation to generation, Mary calls our attention all the way back to the promise that God made to Abraham. Look at verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring 
forever. So he takes us all the way back to Abraham, but he doesn't, she doesn't stop at Abraham. She calls us to look to eternity as well. So there's, a, there's a, a, a continuum here of God's grace where God shows up there in Genesis chapter 12 making a promise to Abram. Listen to Genesis chapter 12 verse 1. God's speaking to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred into your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and to him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Mary says, look back there. That's where it began. But it goes all the way forward into eternity. God began a promise to Abraham And he continues to work today in his people, us, to accomplish his plans and purposes for creation. And it's not done yet. It's not finished. That work that began there in Genesis chapter 12 with Abram continues through you and me today. See, God's promise to Abram had relatively short-term fulfillment, right? He did give Abraham children. He did give Abraham land. But we also understand that, that God is still keeping his promises to Abraham to this day. Every single time somebody becomes aware of God's grace and kindness and they trust in Jesus as their Savior, that is another child of Abraham that is brought into the family. And in eternity future, everyone who is in Christ is a child of that promise that God made to Abraham. All of us. And while we have the great commission today as the church, our Lottie Moon offerings goes to help us further the work of the great commission, the great commission is still just an extension of God's promise to Abraham that all the families of the earth will be blessed through Abraham and his descendants. God's grace in the past continues to energize our activity to this day you know it's Christmas and we're tempted to let our minds consider all of the the Christmas stuff and man it's everywhere isn't it retailers you know Christmas is the is the the that's when all the money comes in right I mean more people spend money at Christmas on things decorations and food and all the stuff of Christmas some of y'all been a little aggressive with the Christmas decorations I won't lie I'd be willing to bet that some of y'all in the room were decorating a Christmas tree while you had trick-or-treaters ringing the doorbell. And I certainly like to give all you Kris Kringles and Holly Jollies a a very hard time. But also understand that Christmas decorations have been a shining point of light in the dark season in our lives. Certainly understand that. However, as we officially begin the Christmas season... We need to make sure that our eyes are focused on God's grace before we consider the consequences of God's grace. All this stuff, all the things that make our Christmas celebration what it is. We can talk about the evergreens and how they point to the, the you know, we, 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 we associate spiritual meaning with these things. The evergreen points to God's endless love. The wreath is that, is that unending nature of God's love. The lights, Christmas lights, lights shining in the darkness. The red of the bows and the red of the poinsettias point to the blood of Jesus. I mean, we can talk all day long about all the different uh, things that we've attached to the stuff of Christmas. 
But let's not miss God's grace that gives us cause to celebrate. Because what's so interesting is this. Think of how easy it is to miss Jesus while celebrating the birth of Jesus. Because for the next month, everyone you meet, with rare exception, is going to be celebrating some form of Christmas. Their houses are decorated. They're going to get together and exchange gifts. They're going to do all the things. But think of how many of those folks who will celebrate Christmas who've truly missed the Savior, who've truly missed the grace of God. It's for this reason that I'm grateful for the Advent season. I'll admit the Advent season, the start of the Advent season, is a reminder of just how many businesses have my email address. Because, buddy, they've been busy, hadn't they? I mean... Uh, I'm almost afraid. I've got a thing. I would encourage you to do this, that, that if you've got an iPhone or something like that, there's a new mode called, called focus modes. And I have created a focus mode on my phone that's called, I call it preaching. And it's turned on from the time church starts on Sunday morning until the time church is over. And then on Wednesday nights, the same thing. And my phone doesn't give me notifications. And so it's not buzzing in my pocket and all those sort of things. There's a few of y'all that get through, like our safety team. I was giving Pete a hard time, you know, that, that he, gets, he gets access. So if you need to get me, go through Pete because Pete's got access. He's supposed to be able to tell me if something, something crazy going on, right? I'm almost afraid to look because there's probably 30 emails that have come through since I've stood up here. Man, Advent's all about it. Everybody who's got my email address is trying to sell me something. But let us remember this. The Advent season is a season of grace. And it is God's grace that leads us to hope, peace, joy, and love. And all those other things that we remember. Because Advent is about the gospel. God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, remembering our humble estate, our sinful estate. We, we can echo with Mary. You have looked down on our humble estate. You have seen the mess that we're in. And you were so gracious to do something about it. God did something on our behalf that we might know eternal life. That's what he did for Mary. You see, Mary wasn't saved by her own effort. Mary was saved by the blood of the kid that she gave birth to. That's what saved Mary. The, the same thing that we're saved by, that, that shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's how we're saved because that is grace. That is God showing us kindness, not because we earned it, but because he is kind and because he is loving and because he desires to be in a relationship with us and because of that great love, he showed grace to us through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in all of the evergreens and hollies and bows, if you miss the cross, you've missed Jesus. Because if you've missed the cross, you've missed grace. And the invitation this morning is for each of us. For some of us today, God's grace in our lives ought to compel us to show grace and kindness to others. Because God has done much for us, we ought to be willing to do much for others. 
we ought to be willing to show kindness to others just like God has shown kindness to us. It's easy to let the busyness and the schedule and the hecticness cause us to be scrooges and by humbugs, but awareness of God's grace should compel us to be kind to others. For some of us today, God's grace in our lives ought to also compel us to take a hard look into our hearts and find those areas where we are presuming upon God's grace, things that we refuse to deal with, sins that continue to set us back, things that we know are presuming upon God's grace. And what God does is he looks at us and he says, that, that needs repentance. That needs repentance. You need to, to deal with that sin. The, the consequences have been paid. The price has been paid. But you need to repent from that sin because you're so aware of what God's grace has done. And the first thing on your list for this Christmas is to repent from whatever that besetting sin might be. And then let's be honest. There are some of us in this room today, maybe watching from home or wherever they may be, maybe nothing more today than to receive God's grace and the forgiveness of sin that comes through Jesus. Today, more than anything in this world, you need to find new life in Christ. And I'm happy to have that conversation with you today. You pray Thanks me, for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.